Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the Historical Fantasy Falcon series and The Girl of Fire, the first in the YA fantasy series. My April interview is with Greta Kelly, and I'll be talking with her about The Frozen Crown, her debut novel, and part of a duology. Here's my review. The horror of the battlefield is fresh for Princess Askia. She's just been forced to flee her kingdom, the northern country of Siravesh, where her cousin now rules under the protection of the Emperor of Robin. All that remains of her army is a one loyal general and her last remaining legion, the Black Wolves. That's not enough to protect her former kingdom from men who are willing to burn entire towns to the ground in order to subjugate the population. Aski has one hope left, and it will not depend on her skill with a sword. Her father, a healer, once helped the Emperor of Vishir, the only land capable of matching Rovan in strength. If Askia can reach Vishir and convince Emperor Arman that Rovan's ruler will eventually challenge the peace and prosperity he's created, Vishir might be drawn into the war before it's too late to save Askia's homeland. But how to obtain the favor of Vishir's emperor, Arman? Should she take advantage of his son's infatuation with her? Should she try to earn the friendship of his principal wife, a stern woman who seems put off by Askia? Should she accept the help of the religious zealots who champion her cause, even though they tortured her years ago? on suspicion of being a witch, like her father. In a court full of devious strangers, Askia will have to learn whom to trust and whose help to ask for. But it is her own concealed dark magic which ultimately holds the key to her survival. Full of twists and turns, the first installment of Greta Kelly's Warrior Witch Duology left me checking publication dates for the follow-up. If you like strong heroines, court intrigues, magic, and a touch of sensual sizzle, this novel is for you. We'll start off Greta's interview with a short reading. Hi, Greta, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. You're welcome. So we're going to start off with Greta doing a short reading. Yeah, so the reading I'm going to be doing is from the first part of The Frozen Crown. It's a portion of the novel where our main character, Askia, is trying to convince Prince Iskander of Bashir to take her to the court of Bashir so she can ask his father for help. Is Emperor Radovan really so invested in holding Saravesh? Iskander asked as we rode south and back into the relative safety of Idun. Surely if you cause enough trouble, he'll cut his losses and withdraw support. That's what we hope, too, I said, pulling my mind away from the memory of the ghost girl's tears. In the beginning, we raised hell, cutting supply lines, ambushing their holdings, harrying them in every way possible. Yet for every soldier we killed, Rovan sent two more. It didn't stop us. It was war. Battle after battle, we won and lost in turn, but we didn't give up until the emperor sent his vengeance. The words clung to my lips, but I had to go on. Iskander had to understand. There was a city in the foothills of the mountains, on the western edge of Lake Litremoth. It was called Medim, 
the little sister. On clear nights, you could see its light from the capital, Solenskaya. On the night of the harvest moon, an army came down from the mountains, surrounded the city, locked its gates, and burned it. Bronco, Radovan's fire witch, obliterated every timber. They say you could hear the screams all the way from the capital, that you could smell it even farther. A choked sound clawed out of Vitaly's throat, a jagged, broken thing. He gulped and pushed ahead alone. Silence lay over us like a shroud. I didn't break it. Let Prince Iskander think about what he'd heard. Let him remember that girl's broken body and imagine the blood-soaked chorus of screams that haunted my dreams. The people left to die for Rovin's greed. Let him tally that against all the reasons not to help me. How many, he finally asked. Eight thousand. Lady night. And then you came south? I nodded, affirming all the things that had not been said. The desperation of my plea. The help that was in his hands to offer. And then I came south. So Askia has very strong motivation to seek out help. She's uh, fought for her mm -hmm. people with a sword. She's tried that. And now mm -hmm. she's going to have to force, she's going to be forced to rely on different skills when she does get to go to Vishur. Uh, what mm -hmm. does Askia mean when she states, perhaps beauty was a weapon you forged of yourself? Oh, yeah, that moment was a real realization for Askia. Um, like a lot of young women, she has this idea in her head that strength is a purely physical trait. And that attitude is so limiting, and it really negates and minimizes a lot of what we consider to be traditional female traits. Throughout the story, Askia learns from the women around her that there are so many other kinds of strengths than just those that come from your sword arm, including beauty. Um, and, and we see that every day, I think, uh, how image can be used to create mythos around a person. Just go on Instagram and find a celebrity page, and, and you'll see how we create stories about and around these people, all in the name of branding. In, in a way, that same thing is kind of true of Askia, who comes to realize that how she presents herself to the world and to this very ruthless court is a weapon that she can and needs to wield. And in fact, if she doesn't take control of her own narrative, you know, someone else is going to take control of it for her, and it's not going to be any help to her. Mm -hmm. And uh, Askia can be very desirable when she's presented or when she chooses to present herself that way. <laughs> And she also has another power, though, one she's had to keep hidden for a very long time. Uh, I don't want to spoil it for new readers, but tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, Askia does have magic. It's a very rare kind of magic. Um, and in this world, magic users are all called witches, uh, regardless of gender. So she's a witch in a world where acceptance of magic and magic users are is really on the decline. Um and it was kind of alluded, she's been keeping her magic hidden her whole life, and that's mainly because of the threat created by the Rovid Empire, which is the nation that conquered her country. Um, for the past 80 or so years, Rovin has been toppling one nation after the next, subjugating their people. And part of that process has included the calling of witches from the population. Uh, there are a lot of rumors and a lot of guesses as to what's happening to those witches, but everyone knows that it can't be a good thing. So <laughs> the need for secrecy has always been paramount for Askia. <laughs> yes, and her father also suffered for his witchcraft, something that will be explored Certainly. in the course of the novel. 
So, yeah, yeah, Askia is something really special. She's called a death witch. And there are other types of witches in this world, too. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us a little more about the magic system in your world and how... Uh, how it works? Is there a price when you use sure. magic? Sure, sure. Yeah, so in this world, there are seven types of magic, um, you know, four typical elemental types, earth, air, fire, and water, as well as three types of spirit magic, which are healing, death magic, and mind magic, which is kind of like the ability to tell the truth from, from a lie. Um, and I love a magic system that takes almost as much as it gives Um really because I think that if magic is all-powerful and solves every problem, it really undercuts any potential conflict in the story mm-hmm. because, you know, why would there be any problems? <laughs> <laughs> so in my world, each type of magic also has a tether that restrains, restrains a witch excuse me, um, from using too much magic. So, for example, a fire witch would suffer from fevers or an earth witch from rheumatism. And it's really just that thing that, like, jerks someone back from, from becoming all-powerful. Well, uh, Asuka does reach the court of Fisher, as we say, and uh, mm-hmm. she has some friends, but it looks like she actually has more enemies than friends, and one of her enemies is Emperor Armand's other son. She has one son who really likes her, the one she's addressing yeah. in your reading, but then there's mm-hmm. the other competitive son, Enver, and he wants power for mm-hmm. himself. He takes every opportunity to insult Askia, often in front of the courtiers. At one such occasion, Askia thinks, they wanted me to scream, to shout. They wanted me to shake my fist or throw a knife. And how, what does she learn from this observation? <laughs> oh, Enver. <laughs> if there's any character I love to hate, it's him. He's such a jerk. <laughs> um, but that moment, I think, is a real turning point in Askia's character. Um, she starts out the story as this brash young woman, you know, the kind of person who hits first and asks questions later. And it's not without reason. I mean, her people are being killed, so obviously there's a lot at stake for her, and she's under enormous amounts of pressure. Um, and early on, that pressure is really pushing her, you know, her already kind of impulsive nature towards recklessness. Um, but that, that attitude, that recklessness, isn't going to help her in Bashir. This country rules over half of the world. Its nobles are known for being subtle and cunning. And Askia hates that about that country. Uh, and she lets everyone know it often and without with relish. <laughs> but the problem is that, you know, venting her spleen and taking people like Enver down a few pegs, it might be satisfying, but it's not ultimately helpful. Um, and I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying about creating an image earlier. Askia is a warrior and a good one. She's a good leader. She wouldn't have an entire legion at her back following her across the world if she wasn't. But no one in Bashir has seen that. All they've seen is this young person with a chip on their shoulder who's prone to being a little bit rash. So no one's going to trust her with an army. Uh, And that's exactly why Enver is saying those things to Askia. And she knows this. So as much as it goes against her, her nature to kind of temper that response, she also knows that it's necessary if the court is ever going to see her as more than just an angry young woman. Yeah, so she butts back her initial response and comes up with some suitably cutting but restrained <laughs> remarks. <laughs> there we go. Use your words, Askia. <laughs> so the hateful Enver, he's also befriended with the ambassador of Robin. And Robin maintains there's a simple, peaceful solution for Askia. 
which would save her country. The Emperor of Rovan wants to marry Askia, and he promises her he would keep her people safe. Askia would do anything, well, almost anything, to save Sarabash, but she will not do this thing. Why not? So I don't want to get too spoilery, but mm-hmm. what I can say is it's, it's not as simple as the ambassador is making it seem. Um, if it were, Askia would do it in a heartbeat, but of course it isn't. Um, the Emperor of Rovan, his name is Radovan, is close to 100 years old now. He's, he's had wives before, wives which he's claimed from the countries that he's invaded. And he is always full of promises of peace and prosperity. But the peace never comes, and the wives always die. So <laughs> for Askia... If it's a choice between sitting quietly and waiting for him to kill her or fighting tooth and nail against insurmountable odds, she'll choose to fight every time. Yeah, every time I read about the Emperor of Rovan, I was thinking, Bluebeard, Bluebeard, <laughs> from the old uh, folktale. Yes, yes, I've gotten that before. <laughs> so the court of Vichir, it seems similar in some ways to that of a sultan. The Emperor Arman has many wives. They live cloistered away from society in what's called the menagerie. I thought that was really fitting. Uh, most men are forbidden <laughs> yeah. to enter, except, of course, him. Are these women mm-hmm. just utterly powerless, or uh, how how do they live? Do they have options? Yeah, so, well, first of all, just a little disclaimer. The inclusion of the menagerie was something I really wanted to be sensitive about, as there's been a long, long history of Western writers depicting these, you know, harems as wildly erotic. Um, so it was important to me to be clear about the political reason that this particular harem exists. And, and no, the women within them are not as powerless as they seem. They're exactly as ambitious or, or not as the rest of the court. Um, the prime example of this would be Queen Azura, who is arguably the second most powerful person in Bashir. And uh, that power doesn't simply come from the fact that she birthed Prince Iskander, one of the potential heirs to the throne. But it's also because she's one of the leaders of the Shadow Guild, which is the body that um, governs and protects Bashir's witches. Um, Askia's relationship with Azura is a kind of a contentious one, but in many ways, I think I, I see Azura at least as the queen that Askia could one day become. Mm-hmm. I love Azura. She's a complicated figure for Askia um, in no small way because she kind of represents the strength that Askia doesn't really come into the story being able to recognize. Um, Azura might not be able to win a fist fight, but she can still control an entire room with a single expression. And I think more than anyone else, Azura is the person who forces Askia to see that she can't win a game especially a political one, by refusing to play it. And that realization really does change everything for Askia and for the story itself. Well, my favorite character besides Askia might be the Emperor Arman himself. I, I kind of had a little crush on him. Mm-hmm. He was vital, charismatic, <laughs> very powerful, and a sexual person. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, mm-hmm. he's still a vulnerable human being. There is definitely mm-hmm. physical attraction between him and your heron, but how is Askia able to connect with him in a deeper way? Oh, well, I'm really glad that Armand resonated with you. I, I really did enjoy writing him. Um, he was certainly a flawed character, but I think mm-hmm. at his core, he is really trying to be, you know, a decent person. Um, and that was important to me because I think in stories where a political marriage is on the table, 
the threat of that kind of relationship becoming abusive always seems very high. Mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't an avenue I wanted to go down with Askia. I really did want her to feel like if there could someday be happiness if she chose to marry Armand. Um, you know, which in an odd way almost made the decision about whether or not she should go through with it harder for her because mm-hmm. she's very much someone who's more comfortable being at a certain level of misery. <laughs> she wants the um, hard way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, she's always waiting for that other shoe to drop. Um, I think that she and Armand kind of see themselves in each other. Um, Armand is a seasoned ruler, but he's seen almost none of his country. He's lived a very sheltered life in that way. Well, the opposite is kind of true of Askia. She's, she's traveled the whole world, but rulership is very new to her. So there's kind of a professional level of compatibility there. Um, but beyond that, they've also both experienced very deep and traumatic losses that they've never been able to quite move past. Um, for Aski, it was the murder of her parents by religious zealots. And for Armand, it was the death of his youngest son, Tarek. Um, and, you know, Aski and her family lived in Armand's court for a while in her youth. So she knew Tarek, and Armand was very well acquainted with her parents. So they kind of, you know, are tied to each other's pasts in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but unlike Armand, Aski is a death witch. And even though she can't bring Tarek back to life, she can potentially bridge some of that distance between father and son and maybe help Armand find a little bit of peace. Um, it's certainly not the only reason he's attracted to Askia, but it's got to be back there in, in the back of his mind. Yeah, I thought it enriched their relationship. Yeah. Moving on to the deities of your world, both Saravesh and mm-hmm. Vishir worship two deities that seem to be interconnected. There is Day Lord and Lady Night. So can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about the characteristics of these deities and those who serve them? Yeah, I've got to love religion, causing problems from time <laughs> time again. <laughs> Um, in the world of the Frozen Crown, there's this overarching deity called the Two-Faced God, um, who, as the name suggests, has those two sides of the Day Lord and Lady Night. Um, and the Day Lord represents order and justice and those things. But Lady Night is chaos and, and importantly, magic. Um, now, most of the world worships both of those um, facets of the Two-Faced God as separate but equal parts of the God itself. Um, but because even in fantasy worlds, human or human, um, there is an increasingly powerful religious movement in Bashir called the Shazir that worship only the Day Lord. Um, the Shazir completely rejects the idea of a two-faced God and believe that Lady Night and the witches who they believe carry her blood are essentially demonic and that it's their duty to find witches, put them on trial, and inevitably kill them. Um, on the outside, and, and certainly from the gilded halls of the Vashiri court, it's very easy to dismiss the Shazir as a fanatic cult. They are certainly zealous. Their leadership is definitely bloodthirsty. And their hatred of witches would, you know, be on par with the Inquisition of our world. Mm-hmm. Um, no one, yeah, no one at court wants them to have power, least of all Askia, who, as you kind of alluded to earlier, um, whose parents were murdered by them when she was little more than a child. Um, unfortunately, and regardless of what Askia wants, she can't deny the fact that their influence is growing. Certainly to the extent that you have to ask yourself, at what point does a cult become a religion? The Shazir are definitely on that cusp, and a huge portion of Bashir's army are members of the Shazir faith. Mm-hmm. And to make matters more difficult, they support Askia. Um, Radovan is a magic user. His army is filled with magic users. 
so to the Shazir or Adhavan is evil incarnate, and asking a woman standing up to them. And, of course, the Shazir have no idea that she's a witch. And because of that, they want to follow her. They are her one of her most vocal supporters in the court of Bashir. They would go to war and die for her. The problem for Askia is what comes after that. How could she let these people loose in her country? And what happens if they ever find out that she, too, is a witch? So it really puts her in this kind of catch-22 situation. Yeah, it's a great irony, further complicating her life, that the people who tortured and mm-hmm. killed her parents and put her on trial and did not mm-hmm. learn that she was a witch are now her biggest fans. Right. <laughs> <laughs> With friends yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, who needs enemies? <laughs> right, right. Well, what are you working on now, Greta? Well, right now we're just doing final edits for the sequel to Frozen Crown. It's called The Seventh Queen, and it's supposed to be coming out sometime in the fall of 2021. So the duology will be complete in just a couple months. So hang on tight, everyone. Yeah, because it ends on a cliffhanger, and you'll want to know more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for taking time out to talk with us. How can people look you up if they want to see what you're up to? What's the best platform to find you on? Yeah, I am uh, easiest to find on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Greta K. Kelly, um, and I'm also on Facebook. You can find me at Greta K. Kelly, but I'm, I'm easier to find on Twitter or Instagram. Okay, well, have a good rest of today, Greta. Thank you for having me. You too. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network and Fantasy. I've been talking to Greta Kelly about the Frozen Crown. Every year, I also try to feature some lesser-known authors with small presses. I'll be posting Anne-Marie Lutz's interview about her novel, Taylor before May's interview with Andrea Stewart. Andrea is the author of The Bone Shard Daughter, the first in the Drowning Empire series. The Bone Shard Daughter was a Goodreads Choice Award nominee for fantasy and debut novel in 2020. I'm your host. Gabrielle Matthew, author of the YA fantasy Girl of Fire, the first in the Baroness Quest series. You'll find the podcast schedule on my website, gabriellematthew.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more, at Gabrielle Author. My name is spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-A-U-T-H-O-R. Well, that's not my name. That's my Twitter handle. Anyway, I hope you'll tune in to Anne-Marie Lutz's interview next time.